Hello, it's Sean Linton here, health correspondent at The Independent, and welcome to The Independent Premium Events podcast. In this series, you'll get the chance to listen back to all of the live events that we put on here at The Indy for our premium subscribers. If you aren't subscribed already, click the link in the description and sign up today for access to loads of exclusive articles, including in-depth analysis from people like me, long reads, opinion pieces, and much, much more. As a subscriber, you can attend events like the one you're about to hear for free and get involved with them as well. So make sure you click the link in the description of this podcast and subscribe to Independent Premium. Hello, and welcome to another episode in the Independent series of webinars. I'm Christian Broughton, the editor of The Independent. The aim of this series is to bring you inside the newsroom to discuss the major themes in the news, along with our leading journalists and some special guests. This is the first time I've hosted one of these events since lockdown began and we all moved from the real world and into the world of Zoom. So I can't really say I'm delighted to be here as here is my spare room, but I am delighted to be speaking to our guests, uh, many of them in their spare rooms and home offices by the looks of it, and taking as many questions as we possibly can from all of you in our audience today. At the bottom of your screen, I hope you can see a button marked Q&A. Please go there and type your question. I can see those questions appear live and I'll be bringing in as many of them as possible so that we can put them to our guests. Tonight, our title is The Future of Healthcare. And I'm delighted to welcome four panelists who, if you can excuse the obvious and unforgivable pun, have their finger firmly on the pulse. Uh, Rachel Power is Chief Executive of the Patients Association, an independent charity that champions the rights of patients. Nigel Edwards is Chief Executive of the Nuffield Trust, a highly influential think tank. Nigel's been at the forefront of health policy for the NHS um, and in several countries as far afield as Azerbaijan, Iraq and Kyrgyzstan. Um, John Ashworth is Labour's Shadow Secretary of State for Health and Social Care under both Jeremy Corbyn and Keir Starmer. He's also the MP for Leicester South too. Um, we did invite a Conservative MP, being the Independent, but they declined. Um, and we also have our very own Sean Linton, the Independent's Health Correspondent and Health Journalist of the Year. So if you can all switch your video on, please, now we can say hello there to Rachel, John, Sean and Nigel. Hello. 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 We have audio too. Excellent. On Saturday evening, um, I hope that many of you would have seen um, Sean's um, exclusive investigation um, that we published, which very much um, set up the debate that we're having today. The investigation was funded by contributions from our supporters. Um, if you want to see more investigations like that, and I know I certainly do, please do visit um, independent.co.uk slash support and see how you can help to fund truly independent journalism. The headline in that report really set the scene in stark terms. Um, it stated that as many as 10 million patients could be on NHS waiting lists by the end of this year. That was a figure that really stopped me in my tracks when I first saw Sean's copy. I'm sure it made an impression on many of you who saw it too. That finding has actually since been corroborated by a report, I believe, from NHS leaders, which you may have seen in the news today. Um, another report from Sean, which has only just been published, um, uh, has put the spotlight on the backlog uh, looming in the world of testing. Um, you do get the impression, reading lots of Sean's copy as it comes in, that we're really just starting to discover the extent of the implications uh, that are hitting the NHS from this pandemic. So, Sean, if I could ask you to um, lead off, really, with a, a, a brief uh, introduction to the work you've recently done and to those particular reports. Yeah, thank you, Christian, and uh, good evening to everybody who's tuned in for this. It's uh, great to to be here hopefully we'll do a few more of these um so i think uh, first of all i think i'll start by setting the scene based on that article that i published at the weekend which really um gave an overview of the the, the utterly uh, incomprehensible difficulties really that for for nhs hospitals and chief executives who are planning the services and what we uh, uncovered really and what we've um, reported and has since been corroborated elsewhere is that the NHS is facing a sort of dual problem of both having had a major crisis in the last few months which has uh, dramatically hit its capacity to deliver routine operations and surgeries with a lot of things being delayed um, and put off to 
uh, till after the crisis. And coupled with that now, as we emerge from those sort of very bleak times, we've now got a significant backlog of work. And also going forward, the, the, the need to keep patients safe. So new rules and precautions on how the service will actually operate, which means in effect that uh, surgeries will be running at 50% capacity. And uh, I spoke to several sources within the NHS talking about how they're having to actually physically remove beds um, and reduce their capacity. So when you put those two together, what that means is a waiting list that is going to be soaring. And uh, I spoke to an expert, Rob Findlay, who uh, effectively said that for every week of the lockdown, the waiting list may be growing by a week uh, in terms of the length of time that people are actually waiting. So we are actually seeing the sort of return of waits that are lasting for a long time, people could be waiting half a year or more, and the total waiting list could grow to 10 million. And so I'll, I'll end with one of the final sort of takeoffs from that piece is that the NHS England agreed a unprecedented contract with private hospitals at the start of the crisis to take on some of that extra work and, and services to be maintained. And we've learned that NHS England will maintain that contract into uh, beyond the end date of the end of June uh, and actually is in talks to agree a much bigger deal with the private to get more activity uh, through the private sector as it looks to deal with a waiting list that could be 10 million strong and I'm, I'm sure we're going to come on to this later but the the other aspect of this is that the NHS will be spending more uh, delivering in effect less and that's going to mean some real tough choices around what the NHS can actually provide in terms of services and we may actually ration care. Um, which well, just is, again, to give us a little bit of context in that, the, uh, the waiting list going into the uh, pandemic period, um, if they're going to be 10 or they could be 10 million coming out of it towards the end of the year, roughly where were they going into it? Uh, we were about four, four and a half million going into the crisis and uh, actually it's worth noting that it, this isn't like the NHS was actually performing brilliantly uh, in January and February. We actually haven't hit the NHS waiting time target of 18 weeks since I think uh, around March 2016. So this has been right. a, a persistent problem in terms of performance, but we've now, uh, if you like, made that so much more difficult as a result of coronavirus. So these are significant challenges for the NHS. And as I'm sure that as the panel will discuss and, and we'll get into, the, these are uh, unprecedented times and the phrase unprecedented has been used uh, uh, quite a lot in the last few months but this really is a difficult situation for hospitals to grapple with. Uh, there have been some positives of course and I'm sure we'll come on to those at some point as well but I think at the moment what is uh, predominant for most people's minds is this massive waiting list and how we actually provide care in the, the, in the shadow of coronavirus. So if I could just come to the panel then, bring everybody in briefly, if I can ask you to keep the, uh, the first, let's, let's zip through the panel on this first question, just to get a, a short answer, please, to this. What do you think is the, sing if you had to highlight one single area of healthcare that really needs some attention on it right now, maybe something that's not you know, in the main headlines at the moment, um, as a result of the pandemic, where do you think we need to look? Should we start with, Rachel, should we start with you? Yeah. Um... Absolutely. I think it's quite hard to um, to pick out a single area of healthcare that's not been highlighted at the moment. Um, but I think the big thing for me right now is how we're managing. There's a lot of talk about patient expectations and how patient expectations should be prepared for the sheer backlog that's out there at the moment. Um, but I think for me, the most important thing is that we get patients involved in the decisions um, and hearing their experiences of health and care. Um, the concept that patients are empowered participants in their own care and the custodian of the NHS should be widely accepted now. And I think, Sean, in your article, it was Sir Robert Francis, our president, who said that NHS has to include people like Steve, the, the patient in your article, in decisions about treatment um, and planning. And that's what we're hearing quite a lot through our helpline. Okay, great. So listening more to the patients themselves who, as uh, I guess, as the pandemic has hit so suddenly, and so yeah. intensely, we maybe need a, a period to follow where we actually stop and listen. Absolutely. And I think uh, prior to the pandemic, I'm not sure that the NHS were completely embedding patient partnership within right. their delivery of services. And I think during the pandemic, patients accepted that 
decisions have to be made, things right. have to move, but this is quite a moment in time that we have to make sure the patient is partner in all decisions. Okay. Nigel, coming to you next. I think Sean has put his finger on, on what the biggest things that are probably going to worry the public the most, which is waiting not just for surgery, but for other investigations like endoscopy, um, imaging, uh, x-ray, CT scanning. These, these are really, really concerning because um, obviously you can't really start treatment until you've got a diagnosis. And we went into the crisis short of pathologists and radiologists and indeed many other types of, uh, of staff as well. Um, in the emergency sector, most of our A&E departments were not built for the patients they were seeing before the pandemic, let alone to provide social distancing for people attending them. So that's kind of, I think it was a very major challenge there. And it's a small area, but I think it is just worth mentioning that dentistry um, just does not work as an economic model uh, with social distancing and space between patients. I think that, that so actually in, in, you know, much of the rest of the NHS will, stack, will, will struggle through. It's very good at crises. It's not perhaps so good at prolonged crises, uh, but, but things like dentistry and some community services have business models which rely on seeing certain numbers of patients. If you can't see them, then month, the economics just don't work. And that we, so we could actually hold, see whole series of services disappearing, let alone just being rationed. I think business models is certainly something that's going to arise in this conversation uh, throughout, really. John, coming to you next. Well, I agree with all, with all the comments. I think, for me, I think we went into this crisis with capacity issues anyway in the National Health Service. I mean, I'm obviously here as a Labour politician, so forgive me if some of my comments are slightly more partisan, but I feel we went into this crisis on the back of 10 years of underfunding the NHS, not giving it uh, a sufficient level of uh, uh, fund funding. I think we went into this crisis with a chronic uh, understaffing, I think about 100,000 vacancies. I think we went into this crisis with completely unacceptable cuts to local public health budgets and uh, in, in many places the undermining of our public health provision, which I think in, which has been reflected in some of the failures that we've seen in managing um, managing the, the pandemic. Now, of course, now, uh, the national debate has all been about how do, how do we stop the NHS from toppling over in responding to this pandemic? And of course, ministers like to congrat congratulate themselves on that front. But, but the NHS has, has coped on the back of discharging elderly patients uh, uh, into social care, on cancelling operations, delaying vital cancer treatments, for example, delaying screenings, um, cancer referrals are down. And we're we have now left with this huge sort of clinical um, backlog, clinical need, a huge backlog building up. Uh, and at the same time, an NHS which will need to make these radical changes in the way it delivers care to treat COVID patients and non-COVID patients. So the question for me is, um, given I believe that the funding settlement that the government gave the NHS in in, in, uh, in, in 2018 was inadequate anyway, are they going to re revisit that settlement? Given that I believed anyway that some of the decisions they made around... Well, it's an interesting point because so far we've heard lots of ministers, we've heard, uh, let's think, Matt Hancock, we've had Rishi Sunak, I think we've had Boris Johnson as well, saying that the NHS will get everything it needs. We've also seen um, a rare outbreak of collaboration across the, the, the two main parties in the House. Um, uh, in tending to kind of generally come together and there's been something of a consensus around that. How long do you think that consensus is going to last? How long do you think that additional funding model can really continue? Um, do you think that we're going to be funding the NHS sufficiently into the future beyond the immediate crisis? Well, I don't think it's been funded sufficiently in recent years and I think they'll have to re revisit this funding. Term. But have we hit a tipping point now where it's, it's unthinkable politically that the NHS doesn't get what it needs? whatever it needs, whether we can debate about exactly what it needs, but and, and how big that bill should be. But do you think we've hit a tipping point? I mean, certainly the popularity of fund funding the NHS can never have been higher as a political issue, potentially the idea of whether it's a hypothecated tax, a dedicated tax, or just a, a higher percentage of, of spend going to healthcare in its broadest sense. Are we confident that this is going to continue into the future? Well, I mean, I think it needs a higher proportion of spend, obviously. I'm not confident it's going to continue uh, at all because the government will will pretty quickly face themselves I, uh, with an awful situation beyond the summer, I suspect, of people coming out of the furlough scheme, 
uh, firms being asked to pay back loans. Everyone's expecting a huge spike in unemployment. I hope to God there isn't, but that is a reasonable expectation from economists. And then the NHS will have to start turning its attention. Um, well, it should start turning its attention to it now, of course, but I think it'll become, uh, in, it'll become more into focus in the winter as we head into possibly another winter crisis. And it's going to start ask, have to start asking itself how it's going to start clearing this backlog of what could be up to 10 million on the waiting list. It's going to need extra funding. And on top of that, let me just finish this before I bring others in. You know, whatever's happened in the, whatever we've done in this crisis to get so the NHS can cope, we have not resolved the long standing issue of adult social care either. No. <laughs> and social services has just been flagged. Has the problems in social care. Yeah, we're having questions already coming in about the, the uh, spending or the, the cuts in social services around the healthcare system uh, coming in from the audience already, actually. Rachel, you're. You're, you're here to represent the, the patient perspective here. Um, are you seeing a high level of, I mean, is there, is, there, is there any confidence among patients that the NHS is going to be given the funding that it needs and that the other uh, social services are, that support the, uh, the NHS are going to be in good shape coming out of this? Can we afford it in the future? Um, no, I suppose for me, uh, I think you picked that up with the government, the Department of Health has said it will continue to provide the resources, funding and support that the NHS needs. Um, but, you know, we have, we have, like you just raised there, um, a huge issue around social care and the funding gap there, and that needs to be addressed. But for me, one of the other things that have come up quite strongly through, and um, we've all been hearing it, is around the health inequalities. Um, we went into the lockdown it, with um, the Marmot report just having been published, which had shown a decline in 10 years in health inequalities. And we've seen this become exacerbated during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, so I think it's funding, health and care obviously need uh, funding um, in line with some of the policy statements that the Nuffield have made, um, in, um, but the other areas across policy that we're looking, that we need to start looking at um, everything from uh, the strategic vision for health and well-being, so getting it aligned across, so looking at areas like housing, employment and just making sure that people's chances to live a well and happy life are there um, before they need to come to the NHS. So I think that needs addressing through too. Nigel, we've had a question come in from um, an audience member called uh, Moga Kamal Yani here, um, who is very quick off the mark with one of our questions. Um, it's a specific thing around <coughs> um, one of the consequences of the, of, of the change, of the rapid change we've seen in health services that that actually may have a, some positivity here. Um, he refers to the uh, level of AI and digitization of healthcare um, that is uh, expanding fast. Um, I suppose we've seen, I'm not sure if this is exactly what he's referring to, but certainly we've seen um, the NHS relying on more video consultation, which might help to reduce waiting lists. There was a line in Sean's recent piece uh, that really kind of um, uh, made it very real for me, the consequences. It was talking about people waiting in their cars uh, while test facilities are ready. So rather than having waiting rooms, you're actually in the car park waiting for a phone call um, to actually just walk into the hospital. You can see the level of disruption could be great, but there are some, maybe some uses of technology that could actually help the situation. Um, but he's asking a question here about the accountability and whether the, uh, the, the level of, of, of private provision within the healthcare system going forward, bearing in mind the, the huge ingestion of technology, uh, whether that's going to be robust enough. Yeah, actually, we can get overexcited about AI. It's probably not paid a big, a big role at all in the current crisis. It's more talked about than done. Um, GPs and many outpatient uh, services have made a major shift uh, to telephone. Actually, it's quite an old technology, it works very well. Um, video adds a bit of clinical value and it's quite useful, for example, in, in those consultations where you may want patients to point at something or where in, say, mental health services, you're interested in their body language, mood and, and affect. But, but actually, the extra, the extra um, hassle of setting up and using video uh, doesn't always add that much clinical value and probably uses more time uh, than a face to face consultation very often. But the combination of using the web to get patients to maybe record their symptoms, use a symptom checker, um, there's a number of quite good ones on the market, and then having GP phone the patient back has been found to be very effective. Um, it probably increases the number of tests 
that might be ordered. It might make the GPs more likely to refer or to prescribe antibiotics, neither of which are great. But, but on balance, it, 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 a very successful um, uh, shift in general practice, uh, remarkable really, and, and very impressive. Um, we should take our hats off to them. And we've seen similar things in outpatients. So actually much of that's been done by the NHS and the role of the private sector in providing that is relatively, uh, relatively uh, small. Um, in terms of accountability, I mean, most of the uh, contracts that those private contractors are uh, providing support um, uh, are made with local GP practices or with local uh, clinical commissioning groups um, rather than with the government and, and the accountability is built into the contract so and there are standard contracts uh, 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 for this. It's fairly well regulated actually. I think people think get... Our country gets um, healthcare technology right. I mean it's, a, it's a, from a maybe it's just because I'm a, I'm a career-long hack that I've seen various headlines over the years of failed healthcare systems. And they're always such enormous and very difficult healthcare systems with the, the demand of very highest standards of privacy protection built into them. But we haven't always had a great reputation in this country for delivering healthcare systems in technology. We've got an app that's coming, but isn't quite here yet. That seems to be pretty crucial to ending yes. lockdown. Um, do you think we, do you think that we, we, we deserve the reputation we've got? Oh, the the the, the phrase um, centrally uh, centrally developed uh, IT project like this app um, uh, fills old hands with me with with a foreboding of public accounts committee hearings um, and and uh, investigations by journalists. Um, uh, I mean, this is not uh, everyone's everyone's public, nodding at that one. Yeah, the, I see the public sector is not is uh, the public sector is, is is not alone in this. It has to be said that it's just it happens to be more open than private private sector IT disasters tend to be uh, uh, slightly uh, better hidden. Much of the technology that we've seen deployed here has actually been more local um, and as I say the phone has paid quite a part which is not yeah. not which is a technology that most people uh, even even if you aren't an IT specialist can uh, can can master there are some issues for some patients obviously in using uh, some of these technologies the opportunity for sort of bigger technology is probably something for the longer term and is more about the organization and management of care in normal times uh, the technology that people have brought into play here has tended to be simpler and therefore actually pretty successful and um, relatively easy to adopt is, is 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 my impression and the challenge is more about how you change your working practices and how you work with patients particularly those patients who may have uh, don't have english as a first language or have hearing impairment or have other uh, other issues and how you deal with those and there is of course unfortunately a point at which you do have to lay hands on a patient you have to do a procedure you have to do a physical examination and and we, there's there is a limit to how far you can use the technology to replace that okay i'm going to so, switch now to oh sorry rachel did you want to so just a few points there a couple of points because we've been um as patient association we've established a digital coalition to try and get patients to the center and to the heart of digital technology and the transformation has been fantastic through the nhs but we we have received calls about patients concern around the role of technology and, and, and along in some of the very basic areas of just accessing appointments um, so i think you know we just need to make sure right now that as we go on to this nhs reset or transformation that we make sure the patients are brought along on that journey and, and finding out how digital actually did work for them through the pandemic and what we can learn from the, those, those um, times to make sure that uh, it works because we have had quite a few issues. Okay, I have an apology to issue here. I've described Moga as a he, but I'm actually corrected <laughs> there. Moga is a she, I'm terribly sorry. I'm actually therefore going to read out another question uh, from, the, uh, from the same audience member here, um, which is about it was just a financial question. It actually cuts to uh, a debate that we see a lot on the uh, comment pages of The Independent at the moment, which is about the relationship between um, the public healthcare system and the world of private healthcare. Um, obviously, it's not, a, it's not a particularly new thing. Sean actually um, uh, corrected me on something earlier today and said that actually from the very foundation of the NHS, some private enterprise has always been in the system. Um, certainly, um, I think we can all, all remember uh, Tony Blair turning to uh, private providers to help clear uh, waiting lists. And maybe if I can come to uh, John with this, uh, Jonathan with this, with this question, really. But 
as uh, more, more public money goes to private providers, is that going to put further financial pressure on the NHS to increase its budgets? Um, do you get, is there a danger here that the NHS gets, becomes reliant upon the private sector and that that just doesn't deliver the same level of financial efficiency in the long run as we might see from a purely public funded model? Uh, what's Labour's stance on this issue at the moment? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, and uh, it, I think it's a, a more complex question than the way in which this sometimes gets uh, played out in the wider debate about the National Health Service. Uh, I mean, I should start by saying I'm obviously a Labour politician. I, I'm quite proud to describe myself as a socialist. Um, uh, and uh, I am very anti the role of some private organisations that we've seen um, in recent times in the National Health Service. And for example, I think giving Serco the contract to deliver test, uh, the test and trace strategy in the way in which uh, uh, Deloitte has had contracts to, to, to do some of this drive-through testing, I think has been, um, uh, it's not an approach I would have gone down. I would have you know, because it's led to a, a crazy situation where a Deloitte test, the results of that test, uh, a sort of football ground drive through, does not get sent to a local GP. And with the tracing, we should be putting local directors of public health in the driving seat. Uh, and local GPs should have a key role. Um, the government did do a bit of a U-turn on that, although they didn't they didn't want to admit that in public that it was a U-turn, but they did eventually start getting local public health services and so on involved, but they should have done that from the start. Um, but I think, uh, and I thought, you know, I just thought a general election, general election, how we lost, but as a, we fought a general election on a sort of end to privatisation in the NHS and a, and a tacit uh, expectation that contracts would begin to come back in-house. But um, isn't, it, isn't it inevitable now that uh, in the circumstance we've got 10 million people on a waiting list it's the right thing to do is it to just reach out to to get as much capacity in the system as possible and if that means buying it in from private hospitals well, isn't that inevitably what's it, going to happen that, i mean that is what we uh, the nhs has sort of effectively done in the last few few months of sort of doing block contracts with private hospitals in order to build surge capacity in the nhs i mean i obviously as a labor politician don't like that but i can understand it in the circumstances the question now is, though, what is the long-term role for the private sector in that respect uh, with the NHS? Is the NHS going to continue that arrangement? I think I, I think I read in Sean's piece, I think it was Sean's Saturday piece, uh, that, uh, or if not Saturday's piece, one of his recent pieces, that yeah. the NHS has, re has renewed uh, that contract. Again, the pragmatist in me understands that in the circumstances where we are now, but if it's the NHS's view that they're going to have this long-term relationship with the private sector, then that is something that's going to have to be debated uh, properly and we need to understand it properly. Because I would argue that we should be building capacity in a public national health service to bring, to bring the waiting list down. And I would argue if perhaps, you know, we've been funding the NHS properly the last 10 years, not taking beds out of the system these last 10 years, not not getting rid of things like the bursary which has left us or contributed to our nursing vacancies we would be in a better position now um thanks john nigel the flip side of that coin if we don't look at the um at expanding by expanding budgets and buying the services the flip side of that really is to ration the services there's always been a capacity issue with the nhs i think um no one's naive enough to think that the nhs can offer all things to all people and we've had the debate before where new new drugs or new treatments that are particularly expensive have come up and put particular pressure in individual cases where, where you know, we, we get these controversies in the headlines from time to time. But now there does seem to be a different focus. There does seem to be a fear factor that um, a sense of rationing has to come into um, NHS services um, in, a, in, a, in a long-term framework. It, um, this is something... Nigel, that you've um, spoken about before, I think you were quoted in Sean's piece, uh, the, the piece that John just referred to, uh, describing um, how this could work. Um, is it something we should be afraid of? Well, it is a real concern um, because with this number of people waiting, um, there will need to be some method for making sure that uh, those who are most in need get treat, treated uh, uh, treated first 
one thing that a number of places are starting to talk about is pooling the waiting lists between groups of hospitals so you can make sure that those patients who are in most pain or where their care is most urgent uh, get get to the top of the queue the, the problem may well be for people whose problems are more minor who would have benefited from earlier treatment and, and often you get better results from earlier treatment but will have to wait until they reach a level of pain discomfort or disability that means that they get to the top of the list we have seen that before in the in the 1980s um, uh, for example that was very much the uh, the way that things happen I think the one of the important things will be that the, the clinicians um, who are making that judgment have very good information about what the preferences and priorities of the patients are um, and also use the clinical criteria combined with that to make the decisions about who gets to the top of the waiting list uh, uh, list. One of the things that we found in the past actually is that um, uh, the solutions to patients' problems and because they've not always been fully understood and investigated, um, there's a, the assumption is that what you need is a knee replacement whereas what you actually might need to do is lose a, lose a couple of stone um, and do some exercise and then see how you do. Um, and so that I think there's a bit of a bit of subtlety and, 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 and sensitivity required here rather than just sort of blanket rule setting. But of course that... The that rationing doesn't makes, always have to mean no, it can mean no something no, slightly softer than that not a hard name alternative yeah well yes that's generally the case I, I do think given the the backlog for example in ct scanning and probably i think i suspect we'll see the same in endoscopy because it produces it's one of these procedures that produces a large amount of aerosol particularly upper upper gastrointestinal uh, tract endoscopy produces a lot of um, aerosol which therefore is an infection uh, risk uh, that we, we may actually find people who we cannot actually physically get into treat um, until there's a very major improvement in either uh, point of care testing or a vaccine um, or, or we may have to develop some alternative methods for dealing with those types of screening. And on the slightly gentler side of that, there was an example, I think, in a paper you wrote recently from Denmark, um, where there was a policy introduced that you needed to have a phone referral to visit an A&E department. So rather than just being yeah, able this to is turn up and, and you know, present yourself as an urgent need, you have to have a yes, referral. Yes, indeed. So in the Netherlands, uh, Denmark and in Norway, in fact, um, uh, attendance at the emergency department is mediated through a telephone conversation. Obviously, if you're homeless or chaotic or, you, or your mates have you've been stabbed and your mates drive you to the hospital, they don't send you out to make a phone call. I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of right. administered right. sensibly. Um, and, and the difference between that service and our 111 service is that you're much more likely to speak to a, a doctor or an advanced practitioner like a very senior nurse practitioner than a than a call handler so it's it's a bit it's quite a bit bit different and, and you, what you might well find is that you ring up and you're given an appointment which given that we need to schedule who goes to A&E when and and also we already make patients sit in A&E departments for very long periods actually in many ways it might actually represent an improvement so in the Netherlands probably about I think about two-thirds or maybe even less per head of population the attendance rate is much much lower because people use walk-ins gp provided walk-in centers or they use the telephone um and that that's that's one sort of fairly pain-free in fact actually might represent an improvement in services um and uh, also overcome some of the very serious physical constraints the um Average A&E department I visit is always running 20, 30, in the case of one hospital I spoke to recently, 100% more patients going through it before the pandemic than it was actually physically designed for. So you just cannot, they're not really, they weren't good environments to start with, but now you try social distancing and also needing to segregate the flows of patients because you need to keep them definitely COVID infectious patients away from everybody else. But these are huge logistical challenges. So anything that one can do to make the lives of both the patients using those services better and also the staff who work in those quite difficult environments uh, better, I think probably is, is, worth, is, is worth considering and it works very well. Sounds like we need another, another NHS app, one to book appointments, maybe uh, maybe something that's quite simple, I, I, but yeah, who I, knows? I, <laughs> Sean, could I come back to you uh, just with a question? We've had a couple of questions here. Let me put two of them to you. One is from um, Simon, who um, has uh, asked, does the panel believe that there is political will uh, to address the, the waiting list issues that you've identified um, in your investigations? I always think that political will 
also depends upon the will of the voters really and how much attention the public gives these uh, gives these um, uh, issues and another question here from Adam Kane um, is how much of the NHS budget is currently going into uh, uh, the PFI uh, uh, into payments under the private, private finance in, in initiatives um, People love talking about massive budgets for the NHS, but ignore the fact that a great deal is siphoned away from patient care. Maybe you could pick up on those two points there, Sean. Uh, interesting questions. I'm not sure I know, actually. I don't know if the other panellists can help me, but uh, in terms of the actual amount we spend on PFI, I know it's a lot, um, but it's, uh, uh, it's uh, bizarrely a, a sort of shrinking amount as time goes on, but uh, it's still quite significant. But I suppose I would start by saying the um, the the willpower um, will be driven, as you said, by the public. And I think, as as John, I'm sure, is very sensitive to the the when lots of patients start complaining about having to wait for six months for their hip operation, and you know we start seeing stories in in newspapers, etc., of people in agony. Um, that will drive the conversation and. You know, we have seen very public commitments already from the Prime Minister uh, that the NHS will get what it needs, and he he will struggle if he tries to renege on some of those promises. I think so. That, well, the next that election is four years away, as, as as we expect it to be Indeed. four years away. We expect to have a, a, a pretty harsh economic uh, dose of reality hit us before then. Um, and, it's and, amazing and, how quickly the the public mood can shift, even on these big questions. Absolutely. And I think what one flip side to that is, of course, that going into this, the NHS was given 20 odd billion pounds in real terms by the, the Treasury. And uh, if I was a civil servant sitting in the Treasury or behind Rishi Sunak's desk, having just now given the NHS even more money to cope with coronavirus, and then I'm told that it will be delivering only 50, 60 percent of what it was doing before, you could forgive the Treasury perhaps for asking what, what exactly is it getting for its money and what cost efficiency is it getting for its money and that could be that could add some tension there between NHS England and the government who you know the the, the myth has always been that the NHS is a, a sort of black hole for public finance uh, and th that is not going to end anytime soon and so that that is a tension that we're going to see going forward and it will play out politically no doubt and uh, I'm sure John and his colleagues are already thinking of how they can uh, best play with that football but it's a uh, it's a big question for the service and for the public because at the end of the day the NHS is funded by the taxpayer uh, and you know that that is always going to be the case and as long as it is it's going to be a political football but I think as I'm sure Rachel will tell us when the public starts getting angry uh, things will listen and I'm sure we can all remember examples from before Jennifer's ear and things like that, which sparked whole debates about the NHS and waiting times, etc. So um, we'll see how it plays out, but it's crucial at the moment. Rachel, what's your sense of, from a, from a patient perspective, are people, is this, is this going to, is this a different, is this taking the whole debate into a whole different realm now? Are people just not satisfied with the level of funding the NHS has given? Is it, is it unthinkable uh, that people would back down from the moment where we've been we've been banging pans and clapping for carers and demanding every resource that the NHS can possibly have. Um, do you think that willpower is going to last uh, through to the next election and beyond? I think at the moment what what patients what we're hearing from patients at the moment is that um, it, patients need clear communication they need to understand the treatment plans so building a little bit on what Nigel was saying earlier on um, if patients know what the options are open to them and that they're involved through uh, with clear timescales and kind of clear shared decision making around risk assessments. Um, we're hearing too many stories about patients being left completely in limbo at the moment and you know one of the main areas of patients that we've heard quite a lot about is those who are shielding. Um, and in terms of infection control as well we need to start um, helping helping the public to understand how we can keep safe in hospitals and what is happening there. But in terms of funding, you know, we have been asking for more funding for the NHS. There is a staffing shortage in the NHS as well, which Jonathan has brought up. And we are hearing about exhausted healthcare professionals who've been working through this COVID um, pandemic. So all of those together need to be addressed and just getting the patient right into the centre of those conversations.
And Christian, if I can just come back as well, uh, one area of finance and funding that the taxpayer uh, may have to step in for, and certainly is something that I think is on the government's mind, is of course social care. And John mentioned social care earlier, but there was an estimate from the Health Foundation today around uh, an annual cost to boost funding for social care of between two and 12 billion, depending on what we wanted to, to actually deliver in social care. Now, obviously that's a, a, a huge amount of money every year on top of what we're spending on, on the NHS. And so the, the, the sort of ledger for the treasury to balance is just getting uh, larger and larger all the time, only on one side of the, the calculation. And that's, that's really the challenge for public policy is, uh, you know, there will be some people who say there will never be a point when it's got enough money. Um, so don't chase that, that dream. Uh, and that's the risk, really, because that, that may actually lead to some uh, in public sector deciding to turn the tap off, really. So a quick, a quick show of uh, a quick uh, summary, then. Who's concerned by the of our panel? How many people are concerned by the, um, the funding requirement of the NHS in the future to clear this backlog and at least get back to where we were before the coronavirus pandemic, even though I understand Several members of our panel don't seem to think that the NHS was in a particularly good state going into this uh, into this pandemic. But who's really concerned that the funding might just not be there given the economic circumstances? I think the funding is definitely not going to be there. Um, yeah. and I'm very concerned also about the Rachel. You're nodding as well, John. I'm assuming that you're going to be on the side that it's not going to. Sorry, Nigel. Continue. Sorry. If we have a no deal Brexit, is it even more likely that the funding uh, won't, won't be there as well? Um, so right. there's a, and even if the funding is there i am also concerned we went into this um crisis with a huge workforce problem um so if we get the money uh, we were relying on people wanting to come and work in what now looks like one of the worst performing countries in terms of its ability to deal with the pandemic in the world um not the best advert for joining the nhs perhaps for joining us here we We've um, uh, uh, we've made it difficult for people to come and get visas. Um, I'm uh, I, I'm. It, it may well be that we will have. It may turn out that Priti Patel turns out to be right, and that there are lots of people uh, who um, are able to enter the labour market. Although I don't think that's quite what she had in mind when she. Uh, said that there's going to be very big unemployment tax yields are going to be down um, I don't see uh, we've already borrowed a great deal of money I don't see where this comes from just on PFI by the way just to, to put the, the nail on that one I mean um, we're contractually bound by the PFI commitments whether we like it or not um, it's about two percent of the total NHS turnover um, quite a lot of that is providing buildings and cleaning and facilities management that you'd have to have anyway the excess profit bit because some of the contracts were not great and some of the financing deals in retrospect, they seemed okay at the time, but in retrospect, um, probably would actually. Um, but they're not huge. I mean, so even if you, if we, if we went uh, full Robert Mugabe and decided to sort of sequester those contracts and, and, and renege on them, which wouldn't, by the way, do our international credit rating very much good. We, trying to borrow money um it would yield pennies um right. you know, so we're, we're we're facing a much bigger problem than sort of quick fixes through uh, riding old political hobby horses we've got much much bigger problems than that so the new normal does feel a lot like funding crises uh, staffing seems to be a big theme that's coming up and decisions of how we ration care and how we bring people and how right, we it feels very people. much like my work for who in x in in middle income countries right right that's I mean, a absolutely. I mean, we, I mean, we are facing this sort of, I mean, I believe we're facing, you know, we're obviously grappling with this public health crisis, which is the pandemic, uh, in, which, which in itself knocks on to the way in which we organise and deliver health and social care. Uh, the, we've not really, we've, had, we've debated here how, how, how the NHS will cope with this huge backlog in uh, elective treatment and what this means for cancer referrals and so on but we've not really talked about how the health and care system responds to those who are recovering from covid i mean i mean all right it's i think it's what we've treated about i think i'm what nine hundred and fifty thousand people or so but i mean at the moment we're ex we don't know, although it would seem that many of those people who have survived, who come out of hospital, are probably surviving with long-term conditions, which will need to be managed. We don't know if they will, they will recover from them, those long-term conditions, 
uh, or, or I use the phrase long term, but we don't. What I mean is, we don't know if they'll recover, uh, and the, you know, by the end of the year or, or this time next year, those people will be um, better, or or whether that they have got long term chronic conditions as a result, which in itself knocks on to whether they can return to the labour market and productivity in the economy. Both the lockdown itself and those who've probably been in hospital have probably also uh, developed. Uh, medium to long-term mental health problems. I'm especially worried about how the lockdown is impacting on children. I think it was UNICEF who said uh, children may not be the um, likely to be victims of coronavirus, but they're certainly the, you know, they're certainly feeling the, uh, the they're certainly the victims of the lockdown by not just being right. out of school and the lack of education opportunities, probably unquantifiable mental health problems. And uh, we've already got obesity crisis in this country that is probably growing. All these issues are going to cause long-term. Um, demands on our health service as well. John, you've just raised there. We've got the economic problems which are building up as well. Sorry, John, you've just raised there the particular victims of this of this situation. We've had actually quite a lot of questions come in now about race um, and the coronavirus pandemic. Um, clearly, uh, race is an issue in the pandemic. Um, it, it does seem to be affecting certain communities more than others. Um, is there a problem with? Um, is there a race problem with the NHS? Does the NHS have to adjust? To, to address that specific concern, the healthcare inequalities. Uh, Rachel, would you like to take, pick that one up? Yeah, uh, the, the effect of the BME community um, has obviously been huge and we really need to get to understand that more. But I think I brought it up earlier on when I spoke about Marmot's review into health inequalities. Um, we have to look at all policies and areas that relate to people's health, um, which including housing, social care, public health and the benefit system, which have all had cuts in their, in their own ways in the last few years. Um, and therefore the impact on, on their health when they enter the NHS um, obviously has been huge through this. So we have a lot of answers to understand people with comorbidities and the black and minority ethnic groups, why the impact of COVID has been so huge. And we really have moral duty to, to raise that question quite loudly now um, and make sure that we get answers and that we don't allow this to continue. John, race in the NHS, would, you, uh, would you agree? Does it need, do, we need the, do we need that change to, to pay specific attention? Sounds like, Rachel, you're, you're, you're suggesting that the issues are more around the NHS rather than within the NHS. John, are you, are you satisfied that the, within the NHS that, that race is not an issue that needs to be addressed? Correctly? I think race is an issue. Can I just correct for myself? I think a moment ago I said the NHS treated 950,000. I meant 95,000 people from COVID. It's quite a big difference. Sorry. It's Sorry. So yeah, facts yeah, and figures absolutely. in my head. Yes. Um, um, <laughs> but, um, uh, no, I think, there is, I think there is a problem because we have seen that this virus uh, it really does thrive on inequality. And we know that amongst black Asian minority ethnic people that they're more likely to die from COVID. Uh, we know that there's disproportionate numbers of deaths amongst black Asian minority ethnic health and social care staff. We know that many uh, uh, low paid staff in the NHS are from black Asian minority ethnic backgrounds. And I think we have a problem which we don't do enough to ask questions about as to why senior management in the National Health Service uh, are, are not from black Asian minority ethnic backgrounds. So there are many, many except, exceptional, um, um, experienced, brilliant people who work in the NHS, um, but you know, very few of them uh, from Black Asian minority ethnic backgrounds go on to become uh, trust leaders, etc. So I think there are issues that we need to confront in the National Health Service, uh, uh, and uh, we, given what is the wider context in which we're now having the, this discussion this evening. I think we can no longer brush these issues under the carpet. Nigel, you mentioned uh, Brexit just a minute ago, the dreaded B word from a time that seemed so simple when we only had Brexit to, uh, to, to, to be upset about. But you mentioned the, um, the dependency of the NHS on its overseas staff. Um, are there racial elements there that need to be addressed in order for the NHS to get onto a better footing for the future? I think we, there's there's a whole range of issues that um, there's, the, there are issues about uh, the way that staff from black and ethnic minority uh, groups are treated and promoted, and uh, which Jonathan has referred to, which is is a known problem, and it just has been taking action on it. But 
you know, progress in all of these areas turns out to be uh, turns out to be very uh, very slow. I mean, since Brexit, we've heard a lot of distressing stories about uh, staff who have come over here uh, to work and support the NHS being abused by patients and their uh, and they're racially abused by patients and their relatives, and the slight feeling that some licence was given to that um, following the 2016. Uh, uh, referendum. Um, opinion polls suggest that Britain is a, a welcoming place. Um, I'm not sure it always uh, feel, feels that. The, the, the people who run hospitals do go out of their way uh, to try and make sure that those overseas uh, staff are well received and looked after when they get here because I mean just from a pragmatic point of view if you don't they go home again um, which is uh, uh, defeats uh, defeats the object. I think this is a very deep and, and troubling issue and, and, and not just uh, the the racial uh, inequalities that we face actually is the, the 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 whole system um, has has big gradients that Michael Marmot and others have, have written about. I mean, it's, it's not. Uh, Mrs. Thatcher banned the use of the word inequality in all policy documents. I seem to remember. Um, I, I'm I'm not entirely sure, despite you know originally Theresa May's warm words on this and and, and Boris Johnson's talk of levelling up, just how far uh, there really is a systematic commitment to dealing with this as a societal level i think the people in the nhs i speak to are very committed to do something about this both in terms of outcomes and experience of, of patients and of staff um, they, they are really behind it they're very they tend to be really values driven people but there's a limit to what they can do on their own without the support of wider society and, and particular government thank you um, I'd like to just make a little bit of room at the end to maybe finish up with something a bit more proactive. We've done a very good job so far of outlining the problems, I think, and the problem seems um, huge. Uh, Sean, let's come to you next, because journalists are renowned, world-renowned for flagging up problems and always accused of never offering any <laughs> positive solutions whatsoever. So let me ask this question to you all, if I may, please. Um, what one uh, policy or practice or new idea would you introduce into the NHS now um, to see it through the next difficult year, Sean? Um, well, I think it's always dangerous for a journalist to start suggesting what people should uh, be Never doing. Never let journalists I'll, I'll have a go. Let alone newspapers. Um, I think, well, first of all, from some of the conversation we've had in the last few minutes, I think there's been mention of, of inequality, and I think. Um, you know, just to hammer that home, I think we've had a decade of austerity, which um, whatever the arguments around why we needed to do that and whether that was right or wrong, there's no doubt about it that as a result of austerity, we have gone backwards uh, as a country in terms of equality and life expectancy and those kinds of things. And Michael Marmot's report made that quite clear. And I think, again, in terms of Brexit and supply chains and the supply of medicine you know all of the, if we have a no deal brexit that again is a huge risk to just the day-to-day -day operation of the nhs um but i think if i was to suggest one major thing that the nhs needs to do i think it needs to really look at the the wider what they call the social determinants of health the wider sort of ingredients to what leads you to end up in a hospital towards the the end of your life we have not invested in those issues uh, for years uh, and we've in fact going into this crisis we cut public health budgets repeatedly um, and I think the consequences of that is we've now got a, a long tail of comorbidities building up that the NHS will be spending an awful lot of time treating in the next uh, you know 10 20 30 years so and bring on the nanny state says sean linson does he uh, bring a, encourage or force us all to become healthier to eat less sugar to do more exercise to maybe to tackle issues such as poverty at source rather uh, than waiting until somebody's ill and heading to a hospital uh, uh, yeah and, and i think to be fair if simon stevens the nhs chief executive was with us he'd probably agree with me and say that he wants those things as well i mean i think the nhs needs to start looking beyond the hospital door and thinking about what it does for housing and health and wider uh, determinants i think that that would be the one thing that i think could deliver the most benefit the problem is that politicians no no offense john politicians won't get the shiny a new hospital that as a result of investing in those kinds of things that's a difficult retail sell because you're promising something 
a long way vote, off into vote the for future. me and I'll tell you what to do in your life and you it, won't well, go to shiny hospital it's a difficult sell so I might be interested to see what John <laughs> says to that actually but John you I are a politician you, you, you may well be in a position to actually do something about things other than and more, more likely than journalists well, what would you I, want to do do you want your shiny hospital or do you want, to, do you want more nanny state what I would you do absolutely I totally agree with Sean I mean this is my big passion as someone who aspires to be the health secretary I don't want to be the health secretary to just put more money into into the, into the NHS, although I want to do that, obviously, but I really want to tackle these wider determinants of so give health. us an idea of a, what, what kind of, a, I mean, is it it's just going to be a big sugar tax, is it? And I'm going to be uh, told to get on my bike rather than in my car. Is that the, is that the gist I would be much more interventionist. So I'd, I'd expand the sugar tax to things like milkshakes. I would take a stronger line on alcohol. Um, I mean, I've done quite a lot around the impacts of alcoholism on families and because right. of my own personal circumstances. Um, I'd invest more in health visiting services. I think, although it's not a health budget issue, I think closing Shore Start centres has been an absolute disastrous policy, which has an impact right. on children's outcomes. I mean, I think this is really important territory and where I'd want to get Are they going to be election okay. winners, do you think? So, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I did fight an election where I wanted... With their freedom. Well, I, I fought an election in November and December where I, I wanted to focus on these sorts of issues and the Tories wanted to focus on building... Um, or rebuilding 40 new hospitals, uh, probably because, um, you know, they'd probably listen to what the, the focus group said and, 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 and so on. But, then other, but given that Sean's already backed that policy, can I ask, can I take a second policy? Yeah, okay. I think, I think this crisis has shown people the value of our healthcare workers. So I would give healthcare workers a decent pay rise and I'd bring back a training, a proper training bursary, a full training bursary, so we can re recruit more nurses, midwives, health visitors, and school nurses, uh, and so on. Because we, because I think as I think as Nigel said it earlier, uh, you know, you can put more money to the NHS, but we need the staff. So we need to. So I'd want a, a plan to solve the staffing crisis in the NHS. So Rachel, Sean has taken. I saw you nodding earlier, but Sean has seems to have gobbled up the first answer there, which people agreed with, which was to tackle healthcare outside of hospitals. Uh, John has agreed with that and added that it's a, it's a staffing issue that's top of the agenda to attract in staff and to bring back full bursaries. Where, from, a, from the patient's view that you give, where would you go next? So I uh, completely agree with Sean and, um, and the views that were just expressed there. Uh, we, have to, we have to deal with health inequalities um, as a society, um, but we have to stop talking about how patients' expectations can be prepared or managed, but we have to start talking about how patients can be equal partners in the solution. We have to see uh, patient partnership embedded in the transformation and delivery and design of health and care systems. Okay, thanks very much. And Nigel, over to you. Well, and, and one, positive policy yeah, for the got, future. I agree with everyone else. I mean, I think it's fantastic. <laughs> Uh, uh, fantastic answers. A, a, a few, a, a, a few things. I mean, I, I think this idea of changing the way that people use services uh, and encouraging more self-care, um, uh, providing phone rather than face-to-face -face, uh, as the first point of point of call. Uh, we've learned a lot about how hospitals, primary care, and social care, when they really put their mind to it, can work together in much more integrated ways. And we ought to try and hang on to, to, to that um, and, and get away from some of the um, sort of rather unhelpful competitive behaviour that we've sometimes seen very much focused on individual institutions rather than on the health of the population. I, I would like to see local health organisations really focusing on how to best meet the needs of their local population rather than filling the, uh, the templates and um, uh, requirements of central government. I think if one, one thing that we've really, uh, I've been worrying about for years and I think that this crisis has sort of demonstrated is this, some things work very well when centrally run, but actually uh, most healthcare is a local business. Uh, the people who deliver it understand the needs of their local population. There's one thing I think we've learned from this and from our international experience is that NHS needs to be much more local in its feel and much, much less uh, the, uh, the- How would you do that? Give us, give us a concrete example of how would, you, how would you make that objective real? How would you achieve that? Well, a number. There are. I, well, I, I don't particularly want to have a, a long discussion about managerial structures because that's really sure. dull. Um, but but you know, but it's power, power back to the hospital. We're not talking about that, Nigel. 
well, yeah, <laughs> my secret is out. But um, so uh, if, if, if you take where I live, which is uh, I, I live just south of Watford, I'm in West Hertfordshire, uh, the hospital, the, the local GPs, the community services, uh, talking to the chairman of their, uh, of their uh, clinical commissioning group have managed to find a way to, 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 to all come together to ask the question, what's the best way of us working together uh, to, provide, uh, to provide the services our local population needs? And I would like to see them empowered to do that and ask many fewer questions uh, by the, the levels above them, which are designed to assuage the anxiety of the system rather than to actually help them. It's the one thing that's really come through from this crisis is how much information that's been collected is not about how you manage the system better locally, but but how you answer questions at the uh, five o'clock press conference, uh, and I think we need to we need to flip things around so that the people at the, the, the uh, and, and again we see this around the world when you empower people and, and sort of you know so the area I live in is what about three hundred thousand people you know anything from fifty to three hundred thousand gives you a sort of good uh, model for setting up a provider about a million million and a half people is a good area for some sort of strategic planning and I don't know sort of five five six million seems to be an optimal size if you look across Europe the best health systems operate in units of about anywhere between one and six or seven million people where we could have we, we I think we should be really think thinking about more regionally delivered locally sensitive health care that, that and we need to find ways of holding that to account because it uses a lot of taxpayers money but I think we got, we've got yeah. to get away from the uh, the idea that you announce in Parliament that every visitor is going to wear a mask there is a lot of agreement with you about localism and the and the the, the need to make it regional and local uh, on the questions that are coming in. I have to also uh, let's thank you all for, for for coming and joining our panel. We are out of time now, and we do have to stick to the timing here. I'm afraid uh, this could run and run, and I'm sure it will. Um, so thank you very much, Rachel. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Thank you very much, Nigel. Thank you again, Sean. Um, and also thank you to everybody in the audience. You've asked so many questions. We haven't. It would have been impossible to have got through all of those questions. I hope you feel we got through as many as we could have. And I do hope to see you all here again soon. Please do keep an eye out on the independent premium channels uh, to see uh, details of future events like this. And please do also remember that the initial investigation that kickstarted this was funded entirely by donations and contributions from our supporters who volunteered that money. So thank you very much to them. If you want to see more independent, truly independent investigations such as this, please do visit independent.co.uk forward slash support. Thank you all very much. Thanks for listening, everybody. Hope you enjoyed that. I know I did. Remember, if you want to take part in events like that one and have access to exclusive content, then click the link in the description of this podcast and subscribe to Independent Premium. 